This is Dune Talk, a DuneNewsNet.com production. Join us now for the latest Dune news, reactions, and lively discussions. Hey there, welcome to a special episode of Dune Talk. The Dune Saga has captured the imaginations of multiple generations, whether it's true words on the book's pages or their movie and TV adaptations. And the story behind all of it is just as fascinating. In a brand new book, The Spice Must Flow, the story of Dune from cult novels to visionary sci-fi novel, uh, movies, author Ryan Britt looks at the 60-year history of Frank Herbert's epic science fiction saga, from inspirations of the original book to its five sequels and multiple journeys to the big and small screen. And yes, Ryan is joining us today. This is Marcus, your editor at dunewsnet.com, and I'm also joined by Mark, a longtime fan of all things Dune. Hi, uh, glad to be back on again uh, with a, yet another Dune book. Uh, it's a Dune season at the moment, so very happy to speak to Ryan about his excellent book. As mentioned, we're um, yeah really excited to have uh, Ryan on as our special guest today. He's been writing about science fiction for many, many years, and his published works include uh, books on Star Wars and Star Trek. Dune fans, you may have seen his articles on Inverse and Den of Geek. Ryan, uh, welcome to Dune Talk. I know our viewers and listeners are interested to hear a bit uh, more about you. How would you describe yourself, whether it's work or interests, uh, in a minute? Um, well, thanks for having me, uh, Mark and Marcus. Um, I guess I am a mentat um, by training, um, <laughs> a human computer of entertainment journalism. Um, I'm an entertainment journalist um, with an emphasis on you know, science fiction, and I've been doing that um, for a little over a decade. And so I guess that that's the easy way of describing myself. And uh, Ryan, as, as always for guests on the show, we want to hear your Dune story. What got you invested in this epic saga? I think that I distinctly remember when the um, Sci-Fi Channel Dune was coming out in 2000 and um, being aware and having seen scenes from the 84 film, but never really under, understanding it. Um, I graduated high school in the year 2000. Um, and so that was a big year. And I was working at a Barnes and Noble um, as a 17 and an 18 year old. And everybody I worked with were big science fiction fantasy readers. And everybody seemed to know everything there was about Dune or Lord of the Rings um, or various other things. And so around that time, um, you know, everybody's like, oh, this is going to be a very serious adaptation of this very serious science fiction novel. And um, yeah, I didn't really put any of this in my book, but that was what it was for me, is that I felt, you know, I was 18 years old, I was becoming a grown-up, and here was this novel that all of these cooler, older guys were, like, telling me was, like, the most important sci-fi novel ever, and it made Star Wars look like kid stuff, and um, so for me, that was probably my Dune Awakening um, that was my origin story for sure. And then, of course, becoming kind of obsessed that summer after I graduated from high school and then, you know, watching the Lynch film and loving it as well. Um, but, you know, I, I remember buying the the VHS tapes, the, the, the giant brick of two VHS tapes of of the Sci-Fi Channel version the, of the William Hurt version. I wish I still had them. Awesome. So we have uh, plenty of questions to cover today. So let's jump into The Spice Must Flow. So... Um, yeah, you, you mentioned the, the, the sci-fi miniseries, and uh, like that, that was, I guess, yeah, now more than 20 years ago, like when, when you were like having the spark to uh, like inspire your book, were you sort of like obsessed with it the whole like this 20 years or was, sort of, for example, the Denis Villeneuve movie uh, like an awakening point for you, for you to? 
Well, I, it was certainly an awakening point professionally because in my business, when a new franchise, you know, reboots itself and I'm one of the people on one, one of the publications that can write about it at length, um, I'm immediately like, well, now I'm invested again. Um, you know, the same was true back in 2017 when Star Trek sort of had a TV comeback. I was like, well, I know a lot about Star Trek. I'm going to start, you know, really getting kind of back into this. And by getting back in, I mean, reading everything. You know what I mean? So, yeah, that said, I I consistently have reread the first couple of Dune novels every few years since I was an adolescent. Um, and um, I was in New York City for a big chunk of my from my 20s to my late 30s. And all my sort of like literary novelist friends, you know, that was their one sci fi novel that they loved. And so I had a lot of friends, a lot of novelist friends in New York. And we talked about Dune a lot. So it never went away. You know what I mean? It, it's never like I, I was never like, oh, I hate Dune or I don't or I'm over Dune or I'm out of my Dune phase. It was always there. Um, and I would always rewatch the Lynch film um, and I would always be really interested. And I, I was even kind of um, apprehensive at first about the Denis idea because I was like, I don't know, I like Arrival, but what, what's that going to be like? You know what I mean? Because things shift very quickly in terms of the way we, you know, when that was just a rumor and Blade Runner. 2049 was out it was kind of like well what's that going to be like so um i was interested though just as a journalist just as a as a reporter like what's this going to be like um and then yeah like when i got to talk to timothy in in 2021 like i was just sort of like uh, that was transformative for me just because i was like oh wow this is like this is a very big movie star in a very what used to be a very niche science fiction idea, you know, and I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, and as mentioned, there, there are a couple of books coming out about uh, Dune in this period, but how, how did you decide on the scope of basically covering the entirety of Dune's 60-year history? Because I like to make my life hard. Um, <laughs> um, because I, I like to invite scorn of other people. No, because it had just never been done. Um, because I, I felt what I liked about revisiting Dune throughout my 20s and 30s, and what I liked about the excitement of people getting back into the books um, when the when the new film's coming out was that it reminded me of how it is this crossover novel, right? Like it is the it is the ultimate crossover science fiction novel in every way, and in many ways the ultimate crossover science fiction series. If you consider the fact that Star Wars wouldn't exist without it, right? Like if that's like a ser if if Star Wars is a surrogate Dune, then Dune is the biggest science fiction thing ever. Um, and it certainly has a lot of influences in, in, you know, Star Trek is is in Doctor Who are in competition there as well. But because it has roots in literature, whereas, you know, Star Wars and Doctor Who and Star Trek do not, it, it, Dune is therefore like more artistically fascinating to me. But within all of that, I did feel that there was just never a every person's book about it. You know, the, you know, Brian Herbert's, uh, biography of his father is wonderful, but it is not a book about Dune, right? Like it is a book about Frank Herbert. And I thought, you know, I want to write something for everybody who that has, knows nothing about this. You know, everything is very specific. Uh, Jodorowsky's Dune, the documentary is about this one thing, you know? So I just felt that there was nothing that a younger version of me, a 17 year old version of me could go to and reach for, or a sort of casual fan, uh, you know, I have a, a great friend of mine is the novelist Karen Russell, and she loves Dune. And I would tell her these factoids about how it was written. And she's like, I didn't know any of that. 
You know what I mean? So a, a, a book for someone like her, a book for someone like my wife, who is a poet and is interested in art and visual art and love the new film. And my wife, Mary, doesn't have the patience, perhaps, to sit through a documentary like Jodorowsky's Dune, perhaps doesn't have the patience to sift through the sequel novels, but is interested in it. So I tried to I tried to think as a very generalist audience. And that's also kind of my thing. I do that in my online writing. I've done it in my previous two books. Um, I had just done it with Star Trek, which was also extremely ambitious and difficult. And um, I just saw it as an opportunity to say, why not? If I, if, if I don't, if I don't do it, someone else will do it. Uh, Mark, before you fire off your first uh, questions, uh, you wrote a written review about the book on dunewsnet.com. What were your uh, overall impressions? So, yeah. So uh, a, a great book, and incredibly, um, you know, you've, even though you've covered those 60 years, you are touching on bits of information that are that either glossed over in other books or documentaries or just never surfaced at all. So um, I know we'll talk about it later, about the, the ecological aspects of Dune and the origin and also how the story of that was revised over his sequels. The... Um, the reception of June Messiah and how Frank Herbert twisted expectations and so on throughout the, the series. Um, stuff in here about the uh, unmade adaptations, both the John Orosky ones and ones um, by Peter Berg as well, which again, are there's not much out there. So yeah, for, for anyone interested in any aspect of June, um, it's, a, it's a great read uh, and highly recommended wouldn't exist without people like this podcast or without people like Market Dune Info Info, right? Like it's also like a little bit of a love letter to all the people that document these things, right? That go online and document them and that don't make it into your average online article or or you know an EW piece or something like that. So I think that that was another thing with it is I wanted to I wanted to, you know, I did a lot of original reporting for it, but I also, you know, a lot of these people aren't alive, you know, so you have to do what you can. And one of my philosophies is just always like, you know, well, whatever is on the Wikipedia page is completely out of context, but that seems to be what everybody will repeat, um, you know. And so then it's always like, <laughs> I'll never forget being in college and getting a, a collected uh, a collection of John Lennon's interviews. And there's all these, it's like some of his last ones he did for Playboy. And there's all these quotes, right, that you've seen a million times out of context. And then you like, you see them in context and you're like, this is totally different. And I, I that's kind of like what I like to do with all of my entertainment writing, all of my pop culture writing, specifically this book is say, you've heard all of this, but what is the context? Let's talk about it. Um, let's talk about it in a new light. Let's try to find other you know, information to support it. Let's, let's have some theories and stuff like that. So I appreciate that, that comment, Mark, but also like people like you that do a lot of archival work are part of how I stand on the shoulders of people like you and I, and people in, in this podcast in a way. Yeah, thank you. Um, so you've interviewed many people uh, for the book. Uh, was there any particular interviewee or a highlight that stood out to you while you were creating the book? Well, I mean, getting a hold of Kyle McLaughlin was obviously pretty cool. Um, I was determined after I'd interviewed Timothy Chalamet uh, for a Den of Geek cover story in 2021, and that gave me the the genesis of like wanting to do the book and talking to Denis. I was like, oh, I could I could take some of what I didn't use these interviews. I could make a bold book. This would be great. Uh, I had gotten Alec Newman, and he was great. I'm sure, as you guys know, Alec Newman is amazing, a humble, wonderful human being. But you know. 
getting Kyle was the Holy Grail. I was kind of like, if I don't get all three Pauls for this book that is about all of Dune, like, who am I? Like, I, I, I failed, you know? Um, so getting, I, I got, I tracked down Kyle through the Dune Reddit folks who were really awesome because they had done an AMA with him. Um, which was funny because his AMA was like the day my previous book was coming out and I couldn't go to the AMA because I was doing an event for my previous book. So I just hounded the Reddit people. They were so helpful. And then Kyle's reps were great. So talking to Kyle for over an hour, um, just about everything was amazing because he, he's exactly as you would think of him where he's just funny. He's a real fan. Um, you know, he starts kind of shit talking like Star Wars, ripping Dune off. And like, you know, that was just, he's like, oh man, even in the Mandalorian and Boba Fett, they're ripping off sandworms. You know, he's just so great. He's, he's one of us, you know what I mean? In a very real way, he is one of us. And I think that, um, you know, and if you like his other work, you know, if you like Twin Peaks or you like his, you know, the other, you know, Blue Velvet, um, you know, you're just like, ah, it's Kyle McLaughlin, you know, he's a legend, Portlandia, you know, so I think that that was definitely the highlight. I mean, he's one of the coolest, just one of the coolest readers and thoughtful uh, artists around. Yeah, he's a great interview with him in there, and he's, he's a great character. Uh, one of uh, my favourite interviews in the book, uh, which was surprising for me, was uh, Teresa Shackelford's, um, Frank Herbert's uh, third wife, I think, his last wife. Um, yes. And she's sometimes mentioned in books, but this is the first time I think I've uh, had a, read an interview with her. So I'm just wondering what was the process like of um, tracking her down and um, any highlights from that? Yeah, so it's Theresa, which I didn't know. Theresa, it's, sorry. It's, no, but no, no, you wouldn't know that. It's Theresa. I didn't know that until I was on <laughs> Zoom with her. Uh, it's Theresa Shackelford. Um, what I did is there was actually a, there was a local... Um, paper that had interviewed her um, where she lives in the South and um, around the time the first Denis film came out and I tracked down the journalist who talked to her and I said on LinkedIn <laughs> and I said, hey, you talked to Theresa Shackelford. I'm doing this book. Um, you know, it's not an official book. Um, my publisher is the same parent publisher that has the rights to the Herbert, the Frank Herbert books through Ace. But I didn't have to get, um, you know, Brian Herbert didn't read this book. Um, he was aware of it. The estate was aware of it. They were like, you guys can do whatever you want, but we're not going to participate in it, which was fine. Because as a journalist, that gives you a little bit more freedom, right? You do official books, it's a little harder. Um, so I had interviewed a journalist who had interviewed Theresa a year prior. Um, and I said, hey, can you give, give me your contact information? I didn't hear anything for nine months. And I would, had given up. And then I just got an email from Theresa in my inbox. And she said, hey, it's really kind of you. I just got this journalist just reached out to me and said, you're doing a book about Dune. I'd love to talk about Frank. I always love to talk about Frank. Anytime anybody wants to talk to me about Frank, I want to talk about Frank. Um, and so there's this myth about her, right? That she's this unapproachable person. And the reality is, is just that she was much younger than Frank when she married him in the last few years of his life. And so, you know, people make a lot of assumptions about that. You know, they would make a lot of assumptions that, you know, uh, he had been having an affair with, uh, with her while married to Beverly. Not true. <laughs> Not true at all. Met her. She was a publicist working on the books uh, when uh, um, Heretics came out. Um, or what, 
Yes. And, you know, she was like, um, you know, um, yeah, when Heretics came out. Um, and so she was assigned him. And this was right after Beverly died. And this is all in, the, in my book. But it's like her story is so interesting. She didn't want to date him. She thought that he was kind of out of her um, out of her age range. And they just kind of they, they fell in love in this unexpected way. And, you know, I think that, Mark, you probably remember this in the book, is I kind of liken her to Princess Irulan in a way because she's like the person that we don't think of as the one true love of Frank Herbert. We think of Beverly Herbert as the one true love of Frank Herbert. In, in many ways, that's accurate. And Theresa, like, sort of supports that view as well. She was like, he would be nothing without Beverly, and he would have never looked at me had Beverly still been alive. Um, so she's a very vibrant intelligent, funny, um, kind, cool person, you know? And, um, I was really, uh, I, I, it was another goal of mine. I was like, well, I'm going to, let's talk to the, the last person who Frank Herbert was married to, who went with him to the premiere of Dune in 84. And they weren't married yet. Um, they were dating at that time, you know, who met Kyle and, you know, met, you know, and, um, yeah, you know, I think that she felt like the, Brian, you know, she replaced their mother and they didn't like that, perhaps. Um, You know, I didn't I didn't feel like getting into that family drama in what I wrote. Um, But just you asked, what was it like talking to her? You know, she talked a little bit about that, but she also really loves her, her, her family, you know, and Frank, Frank's, you know, Frank's son. And um, but yeah, she just I think we get a tendency that to think that Frank Herbert was all one thing. And she showed me that he was more. Yeah, excellent interview. And uh, to take Frank Herbert's life right from the start, right till right to his death uh, in the book is uh, a fascinating read. And I think she's a crucial part of those last few years of his life. Yeah. And, and, and you know, she's also because she was younger than him. It's interesting because she she remembers things differently. Right. Then perhaps some folks who are older or had he lived, you know, it, he, she has a different she's a very contemporary view. Um, on 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 it because she was 29, you know, when they were when they were married, um, which or almost 30. Um, anyway, it's really interesting. She's cool. I really like her. I, I'm very grateful uh, to her. And uh, Ryan, you, you talked about Dune, uh, how it sometimes feels like an open secret. Like there's so many references in pop culture. For example, everybody knows what a sandworm is or and where mm-hmm. the still suit comes from, even if they've never experienced the story for themselves. Uh, yet at the same time, Dune really remains uh, elusive to so many. There, it seems to be tied to some old misconceptions that the book is somehow difficult to read or inaccessible. Do you believe that the full depth and rich teams of the Dune saga will ever make it to the mainstream um, to be understood in the public consciousness, let's say to the extent of franchises like Star Wars or Star Trek? Do I think it has the potential to be understood and appreciated as much as those? Yeah. Um, I think that will, I think so. Yeah, because we're seeing that now, right? Like, in theory, the 2021 film that was originally a 2020 film um, and the 2023 film that's now a 2024 film, it's just like, um, (laughs) Dune's got a Dune. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think we're seeing that that's true. You you don't have a movie. That movie wasn't supposed to be successful, right? It was like COVID had killed it. It was coming out on HBO Max at the same time as the theater's Veneuve was furious. We didn't know if we were going to get part two. It was very uncertain. And it did great globally. 
it had a great global box office and the HBO Max streams were amazing. I had so many texts and I, I didn't know I was going to be doing this book at that time. I was thinking, I was like, oh, let's see how this works out. But I was kind of like, ah, oh, it's probably going to underperform. And once again, Dune's going to be misunderstood. Um, and we'll never know if it would have done well if COVID hadn't happened. But I was wrong. It did well. You know, it did really well. And I think that that proved, I remember, I remember watching it, I saw it in the theater twice, once at a press screening and then once when it came out. And then I watched it at home with my wife and she said the smartest thing. And she said, it's not, it's the anti-Marvel. It's the anti-quippy Star Wars. And she was like, it's so refreshing. And I remember her saying that to me and I was like, that's why it's cool. That is exactly it. Because she hadn't seen the Lynch film in years and never read the novel and she was like, that was great. That's what we've been missing with these kinds of movies. You know, that there's not, uh, uh, you know, I love Oscar Isaac in The Force Awakens too. But like, you know, it was nice that in Dune 2001, we, or uh, 2021, we don't have a lot of silly comedy or Marvel quips. You know, they didn't do that to it. Um, it, it was more earnest. Um, and it should be. And I thought that it, it had the right level of wit and the right level of earnestness. And that is rare because um, I love I love Trek, but tonally Trek is all over the place, and it it can be funny, it can be serious, you know. Tonally, uh, Star Wars is all over the place. Dune Dune has a tone, it has, it has a very specific tone, and I think that that I think Denise film nails that tone, and I think that people who were uninterested in it were like, that's adult science fiction, that's what I wanted, and so yes, I think it won't, you know, I don't know if you're gonna have a Dune convention. But conventions are also misleading, right? Because they're like, well, here are the hardcore fans. I think that Dune fans are quote unquote normal people. And that's why it's actually in a weird way more powerful because you don't need a Dune convention. It's just that big. It doesn't even need it. Uh, in, in my view, uh, when I was reading uh, your book, it's, it feels quite accessible for general audiences. And I think that you said that's your intention, although it does explore the story of some of the later books. And, but at the same time, it does um, uncover some new insights for those of us who are already hardcore fans. You know, I, I learned a lot myself going through the book. So thinking about those two different types of uh, readers, like general audiences versus hardcore fans, what do you hope will be the biggest takeaway for each of those uh, um, audiences? Well, I hope a general reader will lighten up on this drumbeat that Dune is somehow hard and inaccessible because it's just not true. I mean, I just think that it's nuts that people say that. I, it, it's it's nuts. Like, have you read the first page? It's gripping. It's wonderful. You know, um, and that's, you know, have you read the first page of Children of Dune? It's gripping. It's fantastic. Um, so I hope that for general audiences who are like, oh, you know, in the same way that like, you know, the, the Peter Jackson films shook everybody up about pretending like Lord of the Rings was hard to understand. You know what I mean? It was like, you know, 1998, you know, your grandma might not have known who Saruman was. 2002, your grandma knew who Saruman was. You know what I mean? And I think that like the Denis films, you know, have done that for, you know, I say this in the book, just think about Duncan Idaho. Think about how Duncan Idaho just doesn't exist visually before this film. You know, no shade to the previous Duncans um, at all. Um, but come on, Momoa is Duncan in this way that like makes him in the same way that McKellen made Gandalf, you know, like we really, really. So I think that my book is just saying, yes, this is a very big, 
very easy in some way. I mean, I can follow Dune better than I can follow Game of Thrones, to be perfectly honest with you. Like, I don't like I get a little bit bored with Game of Thrones. Um, but so, yes, Dune is greater and more artistic than all those things. All six classic books. For hardcore fans, I hope that they maybe allow themselves to have parallel contradictory thoughts about the saga and about Herbert and about everything. Because I do think that some conversations I've had tend to be like, here's the one correct reading of God Emperor, or here's what Herbert really meant. Or, you know, and I'm like, yeah, but what makes Dune cool is that there's so many contradictions and there are so many takeaways. And that I think that we could stand to be okay with that. You know, like to be like, hey, it's okay to have different readings. It's okay for people to, uh, quote unquote, have read the first novel wrong um, because Herbert's playing two games often and sometimes with more with less intentionality than I think we've been led to believe. Um, And so and also just to appreciate um, the time in which it was made and that where he was in the spectrum of science fiction writers is the dawn of the new wave, the dawn of like science fiction becoming less clunky and more um, artistic and literary. And Herbert to me is the, he's the epicenter of that, right? Cause he, he's got a, he's got a foot in the old Campbell camp of, of things, but then, you know, like, have you guys seen the foundation show? on on apple no well so like i think it's great i think it's wonderful but it's also way better than the novels and the asimov novels herbert was way better than asimov as just as as a writer i don't care i love asimov i have like five billion asimov books anybody can come after me there but i was trying to say look how great he was as just a writer at this time and not just a science fiction writer and um so i hope people and just the miracle that it even happened I hope that people, hardcore fans are like, no, 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 it's really weird the way that it happened. It's even weirder than you think. Um, you know, I hope people think about that because that was fascinating to me going through all the letters and piecing that all together was really cool. Right. Uh, you, you mentioned the different readings of the first June novel and you're uh, in an unusual position of actually having interviewed all three Paul Atreides. And I'm just wondering how you think each of... I'm not going to ask you to name your favourite Paul, but just how do you think each actor approached June differently? I think that Alec probably is the is the only one to date who approached it with a slightly more organic feeling. Because, and this is in the book, is he said that he didn't really know much about Dune, so he was kind of arrogant about it and also sort of confused because he was supposed to be playing a little younger. So all of that awkwardness, I think actually works, <laughs> you know, in his performance. And then when he gets to, uh, you know, the, 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 the children of Dune miniseries, which covers Messiah and children of Dune, he gets to be the older Paul and then he gets to be the preacher, you know, to say what you will about those performances. I think that he gets to again, organically have that journey with that character without really knowing where it was going. I think, Kyle's is the most um, probably emotionally vibrant because he was Paul. He was obsessed with the book as a slightly younger man. He lived in Seattle, Caladan, 
and then he had to go to the desert to do Dune, and it was his first movie, and it's coming of eight. You know, it's come on, like that. He is Paul. So I think for that, that is the most probably emotionally vibrant performance, even if it's the least. Um, uh, and I think his approach probably was that it's probably the, the the least you know sort of faithful or whatever. Um, and then I think with um, with Timothy, I think that Timothy's is probably the most literary. I think it's probably the one that's probably closest to the book. And I think that Timothy, Timothy is a reader. You know what I mean? Not, not obviously Kyle's a super fan. They're all readers. Don't get me wrong. Um, but Timothy, like, it's not like he was like a big Dune fan, but he's like a very, he's a book guy, you know? And so I think that he, you know, he was reading Messiah during lockdown to try to figure it out. So I think that, um, I think he's probably like, if you're doing a stage if you're thinking about it like as a stage play, Timothy is your best, your best Paul. Um, and I know that's weird because it's like the most sophisticated of the films, but um, or at least technologically. But um, does that have a good answer? That was a weird answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it makes perfect sense. Um, you talked about Kyle going from Caladan to Arrakis and, and that change mm-hmm. in ecology. And uh, in your book, you talk about how Frank Herbert took on a little bit of the revisionist history and, and the importance of the ecology in uh, his novel. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that what it, what I mean, you know, it, to <laughs> and I, I, and you know, there's some contradictions in there, as I've said, you know, it, 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 I think that Frank Herbert's idea that he always set out to write an ecological novel that was a environmental warning is revisionist. I think he revised that around 1969, 1970, when Dune was picked up as this kind of environmental book. Um, by the whole Earth catalog, and I get into the sort of history of how that happened, and he, you know, Frank Herbert speaking at the first Earth Day and saying things like, "Oh, I wrote Dune because it rhymed, it sounded like doom, and I wanted it to be an ecological warning." And it's like, well, no, because if you go back to the way he was pitching it to John Campbell when it was serialized in Analog, there's no talk of that. There's no talk between him and Lurton Blassingame, his agent. There's no talk between him and Sterling uh, Lanier, who published it at Chilton, the guy who bought Dune and made it into a novel. There's no talk of that. You know what I mean? It, it, it's a feature of the book. And all the stuff about uh, Lee Kynes' father is in the appendices, right? That's not in, so that's not in the first version. The first version of Dune doesn't have any of that. Um, now, this isn't to say that he wasn't inspired by it because he wanted to write about the real thing that was happening in Oregon um, with ecologists trying to use uh, seagrass to stop uh, sand dunes from, you know, but that's sort of like, that's that's humanity taming nature with a different kind of nature. That's not uh, climate change warning. That's simply like, this is interesting that these people are trying to control their environment. You know, so they didn't have a moral component, right? Like there wasn't an ethical component to Frank Herbert's even nonfiction pitch. It was more like, I'm re- I want to report on this extremely weird specific thing that's happening. Um, now, did he have an agenda when he was writing, you know, when he, when he wrote Dune World, which became Dune? Certainly to pretend like his whole goal was to create like a ecological warning novel, I think it does the novel a disservice, actually. I think it actually kind of reduces it. Uh, but he got, he said it so often, (laughs) you know, that we all just sort of bought it. And I think that like my, the analogy here I always use is Gene Roddenberry. Um, who may or may not have met Frank Herbert once. 
um, Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek, because Roddenberry was always like, oh, I was always trying to create a, a more hopeful vision for humanity. And it's like, well, none of your pitch documents to NBC say that. You know, they say that it's an action adventure show. And none of Herbert's correspondence with Campbell say that, oh, this is, you know, Campbell clearly misunderstood the subversion. And that's there, you know, the subversion of the hero's journey and the political commentary. That's there. Um, but yeah, I think that, I think that Herbert, I mean, he made good on his revision because that is an, a huge aspect of, um, you know, of, of Children of Dune and, and, and of God Emperor to an extent. Um, in terms of, you know, like how the, the terraforming of Arrakis and what that means and how there's one sandworm left and all that, you know, I think he made good on, on that, but, um, yeah, I don't know if it was, it wasn't the sole goal <laughs> of the novel, you know, and, and, and it's particularly true if you look at, uh, um, the first draft, uh, Spice Planet in which that's, so that's not a feature of it at all. You know, that, that's, that is just kind of a, a space opera. Yes. Speaking of um, ideas like from from uh, earlier that have been around for a time, uh, you, you referred to the newer books uh, by Brian Herbert, who's the son of Frank Herbert and Kevin G. Anderson, as um, quasi-canonical. And I was uh, curious, in a, in a world where uh, there are many uh, science fiction franchises where the canonical works include inputs from maybe dozens of different writers, I know, of course, you're very familiar with, with Star Wars, for example. So in your opinion, does Dune's, I guess we can say, tighter approach to canon uh, make their expanded books more or less authoritative? Hmm. This is a tricky one. You're trying to trap me. Um, <laughs> I mean, you'll notice that I don't write a ton about those books in, in here. And the reason why I, so this, I'm going to answer this in a roundabout way. I, I know you asked me a very direct question, but I'm afraid to answer it um, with, a, <laughs> with a more or less. Um, I There was a version of this where I did a lot more on sort of, those books, right? But I found that I was having to recapitulate so much of what happens in those books in order to even analyze them. Because um, I don't know, if I, you know, for the most part, I try to kind of, if you, you know, if you've forgotten, here's what happens in Messiah. If you've forgotten, here's what happens in children, you know, and I, I you know, with God Emperor and Heretic, I mean, even with Heretics, I describe the basic premise, right? You know, like in Chapter House, I describe how it ends, right? So, but with those books, I'm like, I don't know if I can spend 3,000 words just describing what all these books are about. Um, because, so I, I, I decided to take away and, and focus on the things that I felt actually changed the canon, like significantly. And to me, that was the AI stuff. Because to me, that's only hinted at in the six books that we got. And that becomes the whole thing, right? In in some of those prequels and then in, in the sequels as well, in Hunters and Sandworms of Dune. And so... For me, I think the fact that you can choose to say it's the six Herbert books or it's the six Herbert books plus all of this, yes, it gives you, it's less confusing um, than, um, you know, Star Wars or Star Trek canon, perhaps. But the analogy would be like, you know, people used to be like, well, the only thing, real Star Wars canon is what you see visually, right? And all the books are sort of whatever. And now, of course, there's two types of Star Wars canon books, of the non-canon ones and the real ones. Um, will they ever do that with Dune? I hope not. But I guess my question to both of you, I'm going to throw this one back at you guys, <laughs> is that I often wonder if the Dune franchise would have been better off with expanded novels by various different people. 
because they did that with Foundation with Asimov a little bit, right? And it's it's happened before, right? Things go, you know, think about how many wonderful Sherlock Holmes pastiches there are by wonderful authors of different um, backgrounds. So that's my sort of like thing I'll throw back is like, I always wonder, like, I always felt that the Dune sequels were limited by the fact that they were just a Star Wars novelist, a very good one, Kevin J. Analyst, Kevin, Kevin J. Anderson, who's who's a great guy and great, good writer. And Brian Herbert, who's great. And like, you know, there's some of the, I mean, I think that the first Dune prequel, um, you know, House of Trades is, is, is wonderful. But, you know, I have some, I think that there's just a lot in them that is uh, not perhaps what other books are about, <laughs> you know, and also there's a tendency to need to explain everything in some of those prequels. Um, you know, the origin of, of Lady Jessica's, you know, uh, uh, that in particular, um, you know, is, is, I don't know if we needed some of that. So I don't know, but what do you think? Do you feel like, uh, do you guys feel like we could have done with some different authors, you know, exploring that universe? Yeah. I, I've mentioned this in some of my other reviews of the books. It's not so much the different authors, but I'd like to see, different aspects of the Dune universe. We've got this massive universe and it's always the Skywalker family, if you like. It's always House of Trades. And now we've got, you know, Mandalorian, huge success, Andor, huge success, which are veering away from, you know, the Skywalker saga. And I'd like to see that more in the Dune universe, you know, Fremen rampaging across the universe or or anything else like that. Something going on in the guild or the Bene Gesserit that isn't directly related to the Kwisak Haderach. Um, that, that's what I'd like to see more of in the Dune universe. That's cool. I'd love that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I, I, I admitted before that I haven't read all of the expanded books. So like I, I was like a huge, uh, huge into the original Dune books. Like uh, I, I read them when I, when I was in, in grade school pretty early at the same time I was reading Lord of the Rings and, and everything. Um, and then like I had sort of an awakening moment for, for Dune later on. And then I started to like see, okay, what, what else has come, come out in the meantime? Um, yeah, and it seemed like there, there was a lot of like uh, discussions on, on online with people with uh, wildly different opinions of the books. But like the, the ones that I read, like for example, House of Trades, like I, I enjoyed uh, that one. Um, but yeah, I, I, I would be interested to, to see, like, as, as Mark was mentioning, may, maybe a different author have a take on something different on the Dune universe, because we, we have this, this story and it's, you know, it's the core of, core of Dune, like the, the, the prophecy, Maudib, like the, the, the God or Emperor, that, that, that whole journey. But at the same time, like it's a universe of a million worlds and there must be so much going on in these, these different worlds, so many different cultures, uh, like so many people must have different perceptions of, of how things are going on. So from my perspective, as, as long as it's approached uh, like from the canon perspective and the author is is really like themselves a huge fan of the book and they understand the themes I, I would be open to that yeah i always wanted to like i always think whenever you have these kind of post-earth science fiction emp empires right whether it's like foundation or like Battlestar galactica right you know where you're kind of like what if you did a contemporary novel that's set in the dune universe and the dune is just in in our future you know and you somehow you know what i mean like i always because if you when you dive into the dune encyclopedia which is of course very non-canon um it has stuff like that where they're like well actually the Benny Gesserit started on earth in 2000 and you know when it's like wait a minute that's cool you know what i mean i could imagine something like that you know that i think would be really like the origins of dune like but in like 1997 um <laughs> on our planet you know in our timeline um Anyway, that that would you know that would be yeah. my. So you, my you're dream. saying Chat GPT is the uh, starting of the hair in jihad? Is that what you said? Right, right, right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Funny story. I will I will reveal this. At one time, somebody suggested I won't say who it was suggested that we use AI to do the cover of my book, and I said absolutely not. <laughs> I was like, there is no. I will I will walk out now, <laughs> right now. If we do that, uh, no, uh, no thinking machines. Um, <laughs> thinking machine shall not replace. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all that stuff's really fascinating. Um, and it's interesting to be like, I always loved that Frank Herbert had that as a as a historical um, fact that was in such the distant past. Like, what a brilliant bit of world building to just not have robots um, in your science fiction empire and have a good a good reason for it. Um, yeah, I talked to uh, the novelist Michael Shabone about this a bit uh, because he he stole. Uh, some uh, Butlerian jihad mythology for the first season of Star Trek Picard and put it in the backstory of the Romulans that they were very anti-AI. And I thought that was really interesting. That Everybody wants to steal that Butlerian jihad backstory and give it to some space empire because it's such a cool way to then like slide past why you don't have a bunch of robots and other, other nonsense. Right. So with uh, uh, June part two, Coming out soon, hopefully. Touch wood. Dune <laughs> yeah. um, fans are already, you know, uh, looking forward to an adaptation of Dune Messiah. And uh, in 2021, I believe you spoke to Denis Villeneuve about his uh, plans for a trilogy. So I'm just wondering what you think we could expect from um, a Dune Part Three. Yeah, I think that Denis Villeneuve views it as one story. I think he views that as the end of Paul's story, and I think that. I, I, I was one of the first journalists, I think, that he said that to. I could be wrong, because it was July before the film came had come out. So it was pretty early. Um, and um, yeah, I remember when he said that, I was so excited. And when Timothy had said that he was reading Dune Messiah. And, um, you know, I what do, what do I think that it would be like? I think that it would be potentially the greatest science fiction trilogy of films ever depending on how great part two is. You know what I mean? Um, science fiction film trilogies tend to have third part problems, right? <laughs> you know, we, we we tend to think of, of the third parts of science fiction trilogies. Back to the Future 3, I think, is a great example. It's great, but, you know, it's it's no Back to the Future 1 or 2, Return of the Jedi, uh, etc. Um I think that you could potentially be like, look, Godfather Part 3, not science fiction, but, you know, we all can, you know, I think it could be potentially, you know, the greatest ever because it would be like, I sometimes wonder if Dune Messiah shouldn't just be sold as part of Dune. Um, and I know that that's nuts because the ending of Dune is great, but like, you know, to me, the story of Paul does kind of end with him walking into the desert, right? Blinded. But that is kind of the ending of his story. Um, and yes, he's back in children, you know, and all that stuff. But like, I think that you could cinematically end the story of Paul with that image, right? Of him walking. And Denis had said to me and, and to others that, you know, after that, he felt like the books got too complex or too, you know, they go into different directions in terms of the characters. So it would be not. And even John Harrison, the director of the uh, 2000 Dune, said that to me too. He was like, we never really figured out if we were going to be able to do God Emperor, you know, when they did, when they did Messiah and Children of Dune. I mean, that's what the wonderful thing about the 2003 Children of Dune miniseries is the novelty of it is that they did Messiah. They did it. 
they did it in like an hour and a half or something. You know, it's kind of amazing that that that, that even exists. Uh, that you know, it's almost like it doesn't. When you watch, it, you're like, wait, they did it. They're doing it. Um, you know, he's getting uh, the the vision is wrong. You know, all the cool stuff that happens in the in the book. Um, but yeah, I mean, the return of Duncan Idaho alone as that kind of shadowy version of of himself as hate is really cool. Um, I think it could just be potentially one of the cool, I think it could be better than Dune part two as a film, just in terms of satisfaction. I'm looking forward to Dune part two, but I will be very disappointed if we don't get what feels emotionally like, it feels like Denis want views it that way, right? Like he views it like, uh, you know, cause as a child, he read Dune in two halves cause the French translations were in two volumes and then he read Messiah. So it makes sense that it's a trilogy to him. Right, because it's one, it's it's Dune Part One, Dune Part Two, and Messiah, and that's it. Um, and I think that, uh, yeah, and it's almost like you wouldn't need anything else after that. You know what I mean? It would be like that's it. That it would, I think it could be. A, I think it would be incredible. Um, will it happen? I don't know. Yeah, I was just, just talking about this in the, our our previous show. Like, whereas with with Dune, like uh, you know, with, with two movies, you still have to cut a lot of stuff. You know, like as hardcore fans, there are, there are certain scenes that, that we miss, and you know, feel like they could have gone more into the characters. But Dune Messiah with its length, it feels just perfect. You know, like for for a cinematic uh, adaptation. Well, and you guys both know from reading my book that I'm a big Irulan fan, and so I think that you don't get. You know, the fact that we've saved Irulan for part two, we don't get the full Irulan meaning unless we get Messiah. You know, she's plotting against him in that one. You know, it's this conspiracy. It's so cool. You know, um, it, you get the the whole story of, of, of the Reverend Mother coming back to her. You know, like seeing him in power is so interesting. And like, I don't know, uh, you, you get Alia grown up. That, that, you know, we've only had an adult, Alia, you know, once in, in that miniseries, in that sci-fi miniseries. So, I mean, that w- that's also really interesting to me. And Alicia Witt told me in the book that she's like, I would play a, an adult version. Uh, you know, she played the baby in the Lynch film. And, you know, she was like, I think I'm too old now. I was like, I don't know. <laughs> you look pretty great. I think that would be awesome. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, so well, I don't know. Bizarrely enough, for the Children of Dune miniseries, they were considering Alicia Witt. Yeah. Alia. It's just uh, it, it fell through due to a conflict of schedules and stuff. But yeah, which is fantastic. <laughs> I mean, that would be great. Yeah. Or like, yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah. There's a lot of fun stunt casting I've thought about with that like if you you know people were saying well what if they brought back kyle as some other character or something like that you know i think i think it's all of that would be really cool um uh you know so so long as we don't replace bajaz with an ewok then you'll be happy yeah uh (laughs) yeah exactly uh ryan one point you touched on uh, briefly in the book was the question of appropriation and i've seen that come up doesn't come up often but it comes up once in a while and since frank herbert did take inspiration from so many different cultures and belief systems and it's it's curious right because science fiction and fantasy in general it does draw a lot from real world elements in some fashion or another and uh, personally like i've enjoyed seeing other countries reinterpret uh, stories from from my culture uh, you know adding their unique perspectives like for example something we've seen done well with uh, japanese anime and, and games uh, my question is knowing how many great works have been inspired by real world peoples it, it, isn't this a positive or like wh- where do you see that, that occasional concern coming from? I think that what I tried to do with this subject was to go to the experts. You know what I mean? To go to the people that were the scholars, the academics that were actually studying it, which is why I talked to Harris Durrani, um, and his and that's why his interviews and some of his views are in there. 
And I tried to sort of really become a journalist in those moments and say, okay, here's what people are saying about this. And I think that Harris has the right view, which is that it's it's not appropriation if it's if it's saying something. You know what I mean? There there's been a um, accusation that you know uh, it's Orientalism because Herbert was just using the terms to create an exotic sort of feel to things, and it's like, nah, that's not really true because he's actually like saying something. And so yeah, I think that um, you know c- could Dune be written today? Perhaps not. Um, perhaps some of the words would be different in terms of their Arabic derivations. Um, but the fact that it inspires so much conversation about those inspirations, because, you know, the word jihad is used in different contexts, you know, as we know in the Dune saga. Um, but that, you know, something that I learned from a Muslim scholar like Harris is that that doesn't just mean a war. It also involves internal struggles. And I was like, well, that's really interesting. Like, people should know more about that. <laughs> you know, um, so my answer to your question is I think that Herbert was daring to draw on the different inspirations that he drew on. And that if you look at other science fiction of the time, it wasn't in terms of galactic empire stories. It, they're not near as rich. You know, they're not near as um, lived in. You know, and I bring up Foundation again just because I think it's something that the show has done. Foundation is like a faux Dune, the the, t- the TV show, whereas the not Dune novels were taking what Asimov did and being like, let's actually make that seem realistic, and and let's actually talk about uh, uh, prescience and precognition in a different way, right? Because like Foundation is like, let's predict the future, and that's interesting and scientific, whereas Dune is like, let's predict the future, and that's horrible. Right. Like what's the ultimate end of the saga? There needs to be people that are invisible to prescience. The no ship is invisible to prescience. Right. So it's like the opposite of like psychohistory and foundation. You know, um, the difference is, is that like if you read the Asimov novels, they don't feel real. That world doesn't feel lived in. Herbert, by drawing upon different cultural inspirations, made his future empire seem real. And so I think that that's it gives us a richness. Those inspirations give it a richness that is totally absent I think in a vast majority of this genre of science fiction prior. And this is uh, really more of an open question. Um, in your eyes, what is Dune's lasting legacy on the world? <laughs> <laughs> I should know the answer to this question. <laughs> I would say, I would say, read my book, and and maybe there's an answer to that question. <laughs> um, I think the lasting legacy on the world is that science fiction can be extremely mature for art form. That science fiction as an art form can be mature and um, lasting on the same level as another work of literature that's not science fiction. And I don't think that Tolkien did it with fantasy. He proved that fantasy could be that, right? And we've had a few works of fantasy since then that perhaps have risen to that stature. Maybe there's been ones of just high of quality, but in terms of their perception, right? Um, with Dune, I, I think there are very few science fiction novels, a lot of great ones in terms of quality, but in terms of reputation, that you can really um, have a, an adult novel that uses 
some sort of familiar, perhaps juvenile tropes, even, you know, uh, battling monsters in a strange land. You know what I mean? Like on some level you do several, you let your eyes go out of focus and, you know, you talk about the, the, the generalities of Dune and it, you know, even Herbert says, and you know, that, Oh, the sandworm was protecting the pearl of great price and all this stuff. Um, that's my, that's my Frank Herbert impression. Um, you know, um, but you know, uh, have you guys ever listened to his really old audiobooks and stuff? Um, when he describes the sandworm, it was the pearl of great price. Um, but yeah, I think that, um, that's the legacy of it is that it said this can be adult science fiction. This art form of science fiction is complex and political and it is an art form that ha- is more capacious for adult storytelling than ever before. And that's saying something because you had, you know, Robert Heinlein at that point and you had Asimov and you had Philip K. Dick um, at that point. But I don't think that those guys probably wrote more individual good books than Herbert did. Um, but none of them wrote Dune. <laughs> you know, none of them wrote Dune. Uh, Ursula K. Le Guin, amazing. Absolutely amazing figure. She didn't write Dune. You know what I mean? Like, I think that that's, that's, that's the thing with Dune um, is that it's, it's like The Hobbit. It's unbelievable. It's so, and it's not like The Hobbit, like at all, but in terms of its reputation and its legacy, it is. It, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a massive work of, of, of art that um, is undeniable. Uh, well, thank you, Ryan. It's been our absolute pleasure to have you on this Dune Talk and to hear all your insights about the rich history of Dune. And I'm sure the Spice Must Flow will be a valuable resource for other uh, Dune fans as well. Uh, so before we close, I want to give an opportunity for you to talk about where people can find about uh, more about you, uh, of the book, any other upcoming projects you're working on? Uh, yeah, you know, you can get the book hopefully at most bookstores if you're in uh, the U.S. If not, um, you get it on any online outlet that you'd like. Um, yeah. And then, um, I, you know, I write for Inverse and Den of Geek as, as Marcus said at the top of the, uh, uh, show. So, you know, um, <laughs> you can read all my work there. I'll be covering, you know, Dune. I was hoping to be going to a press screening, you know, at this time of year, but now Dune part two is next year. So, um, I'll probably be babbling about Dune for a much, much longer, um, well into 2024. So you can read, um, uh, you can find me on Twitter, uh, uh Ryan C. Britt. I'm on Instagram at ryan.brit. Um, and yeah, I am, I'm working on a few different projects, uh, but uh, one may involve a certain uh, British uh, secret agent uh, that is uh, known for his specific way he likes uh, uh, vodka drinks. Um, <laughs> and another project may or may not involve a, uh, a, a detective who uh, likes shooting cocaine. Um, so you can guess what those might be about. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I might be working on some, some, some stuff, um, both a nonfiction project, uh, that may be about Bond and a, um, possible Sherlock Holmes, uh, fiction project, but those are in the development stages. Right. Well, it was, uh, great to finally meet you, uh, Ryan, uh, once again, uh, an absolutely great book, uh, recommend it to everyone. Um, great stocking filler for Christmas coming up and Thanksgiving. Um, and if anyone wants to follow me, I'm June Info on pretty much all the socials. Yeah, this was uh, Marcus Gabriel. Uh, you can find me writing at dunewsnet.com and on uh, uh, X and um, Facebook at Marcus's Writing. 
uh, yeah, thanks again, uh, Ryan. And um, yeah, thanks again for everybody who's been supporting this uh, the show, all the new subscribers. Uh, we're going to have more special guests, uh, more uh, deep dives into different topics over the next few uh, few weeks and months as we count on to do in part two. Just let us know what you want to see. Take care. We hope you've enjoyed Dune Talk. Remember to like, subscribe, and turn on notifications so you know when the next episode drops. Stay tuned to doomnewsnet.com and add us to your social feeds. Be the first to hear breaking news and reviews.